1: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we get an inside look at how schools are incorporating trauma-informed practices into their classrooms.
2: You know, students do better uh, when they know they are safe in a place and when things are predictable.
1: And we speak with a small town Colorado photographer about his nationally acclaimed photo essay. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. In a press conference this week, Governor Jared Polis expressed more frustration than he has in months about the coronavirus pandemic.
3: Well, I'm very, I'm very frustrated. Um, you know, and I'm frustrated because unlike a year ago where we were, we were all in this together and, and we, 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 we had great sympathy for anybody afflicted and we were all wearing masks to protect one another, now's a time where most of us are protected. And yet the 20 percent that haven't yet chosen to get protected, you know, are putting themselves at risk, which you can certainly argue is their own business. And I, you know, have no qualm if they have a death wish, but they're clogging our hospitals.
1: For more on the current state of the pandemic, we're joined by KUNC's Michael DeOena. Michael, welcome. Hi. So strong words from the governor there.
3: Yes, and they come as the state uh, struggles with some of the highest COVID-19 rates in the country. Infections have been going up for weeks. One in every 51 Coloradans is infected. And the situation, as the governor noted, is stretching hospitals to the limit. As of today, there are 1,280 people in hospital beds with the virus. That's the highest number since late last year, which is before vaccines were widely available. And roughly 80% of those in beds were not vaccinated. So that's what led officials to reiterate what they have over and over. People who aren't vaccinated should get vaccinated, Vaccinated adults should consider getting a booster now, and people should continue wearing masks in most situations uh, to prevent the spread of the virus.
1: Any idea about why cases are rising in Colorado when they've been going down in many states, or leveling off at least?
3: Yeah, you know, Aaron, that's a really interesting question, and one I put to the state's chief epidemiologist, Dr. Rachel Herlihy, in a press conference this week.
1: Last year, it was the same thing. It was late November, early December. And, and that's, again, what we're forecasting right now. So I think there is something something with seasonality, human behavior. It's hard to know. Is it, is it temperature? Is it humidity? Is it human behavior when the weather changes? It's hard to really know exactly what it might be.
3: In other words, just like the flu hits around the same time every year, COVID could be doing that. And Colorado might be ahead of the curve on this, and cases across the country could rise. What that means for Colorado is this isn't over at all. The question is, how bad will it get? Dr. Hurley, he says, if cases stay on their current trajectory, there could be a peak of 1,500 hospitalizations around Thanksgiving— but if people let their guard down and there are more infections, there could be around 1,900 hospitalizations at that time. And that's very close to the limit for beds in Colorado.
1: We think that maximum capacity is probably around 2,000, meaning if we see a worsening in transmission control in the state, that could certainly um, significantly um, hamper our healthcare system's ability to care for our most severely ill patients. So that's why we're seeing some actions around hospitals right now?
3: Yeah, if you recall, it was the prospect of full hospitals that led to lockdowns last year. The governor isn't proposing anything like that, but there are some things going on, like has signed an order that allows hospitals to turn away patients if they're at capacity, and hospitals struggling with capacity may transition patients out to other facilities around the state.
1: Well, Michael, back to the vaccination issue, how do state officials believe that can help?
3: Yeah, as we know, uh, mandates are. taking hold around the state and the country, and some people are only now getting their second second doses. In all, about 72% of Coloradans are fully vaccinated, but state health officials say uh, immunity from the vaccines may be waning, which is why they're recommending boosters for older adults and now for children, including those 5 to 11 who are eligible. Uh, Health officials say uh, with the holidays ahead, families should make vaccinations a priority right now.
1: Michael Deoana is KUNC's investigative reporter. Michael, thank you so much. You're welcome. As we just noted, health officials say vaccines are an essential part of getting the pandemic back under control in Colorado. The COVID-19 vaccine will soon be available to kids age five through 11. Many people have questions. What do you want to know about this step in the vaccination process? KUNC is collaborating with America Amplified to answer your questions about the vaccine. Submit them at KUNC.org and we'll send back your answers. supplies, homework, children bring these items into the classroom every day. But they may also carry the effects of trauma due to things like parental neglect, community violence, or COVID-19. And teachers are often the first to notice. That's why the state now requires behavioral health training for teachers and for those studying to become one. But as KUNC's Stephanie Daniel reports, one university has already been incorporating trauma-informed practices into their curriculum.
0: At East Elementary School in Littleton, a group of fifth graders are sitting in a semicircle around student teacher Stephanie Shufelt.
4: Yesterday we talked about resiliency. Can someone remind
0: me of what that actually meant? This is their morning meeting. Four days a week, they set aside time specifically for social-emotional learning where students are taught self-regulation skills.
4: So today I kind of wanted to talk about a strategy and how to be resilient.
0: She felt as a mom and a veteran. She served in the Air Force for nine years and after leaving active duty, worked as a substitute teacher at Osan Air Base in South Korea. One of the things
4: that I relate to here that I can bring is how they focus on resiliency for the military child because they're constantly just experiencing changes. Like moving to a new base, parents divorcing or the loss of a loved one. Having to experience those, they focus on um, how to cope so I think that's important to teach here, and they do with their social-emotional
0: learning. East Elementary provides resources for Schufelt and the other teachers, so they are prepared to lead this work. But she also has a certificate in trauma-informed practices from Metropolitan State University of Denver, where she's a senior in the School of Education.
4: You can't learn if you're in survival brain. Elizabeth Hind is the dean. And that's what trauma-informed practices helps teachers understand and get through that so that the kids can
0: learn. More than two-thirds of children have experienced at least one traumatic event, according to the federal government. And their reaction to this can directly impact how they learn and or their behavior at school. So educators play a critical role in supporting them. But Hind says teachers are not there to replace social workers, counselors, or psychologists.
4: We're preparing teachers who can recognize the effects of trauma, address right then and there what's happening in the classroom. And then
0: as needed, get the kids and their families to the professionals who can help. Since 2018, MSU Denver has partnered with the nonprofit Resilient Futures to offer a certificate in trauma-informed practices and embed these philosophies in the undergraduate curriculum. Associate Professor Ophelia Shepers says this includes core principles like safety and predictability.
2: You know, students do better uh, when they know they are safe in a place. And when things are predictable.
0: And cultural humility and equity, which is important, she says, when looking at how students' lives are reflected in the classroom.
2: And how we're being intentional about um, not only bringing in culturally responsive teaching practices, which really aligns with trauma-informed practices, but also thinking about how. The lack of voices is a trauma in itself.
0: MSU Denver education students are also thinking about how to bring these resources into the classroom. So when they're teaching, their students can see themselves in the curriculum, like reading books that feature kids of color. Shepard says this also extends to faculty as they figure out better ways to support these college students. There
2: are times in the semester when you can see they're overwhelmed. Like, what does it mean for me to really touch base and see how they're feeling? And, you know, possibly take one assignment away.
0: Educators can also be negatively impacted by the issues children face. That's why the School of Education recently launched a study to examine if trauma-informed practices and mentorship can improve teacher burnout and retention. It will follow new teachers for three years because research shows most leave the profession within three to five years. Back at East Elementary, the fifth graders are now filling out a worksheet on resiliency. What does this mean? This, this is, cool. is tough, but I, but so am I. Partners Micah Conroy and Joshua Mesa Hernandez are answering this prompt. I can go outside and take deep breaths. Uh, you know, just go outside play with my little brother. The school has a diverse student body with a lot of English language learners. And assistant principal Amanda Thanos says many are dealing with issues from fighting at home to food insecurity to just feeling off. What we can do is recognize that they do come with some sort of background and story. And whatever they're showing up with is what we can address here at school. East started these structured morning meetings five years ago. And Thanos says it's led to a reduction in suspensions, detentions and other disciplinary actions. When things do come up, they know that they have People that can help them, but they also have power within themselves to help as well because we've given them some of those skills.
4: Do you remember any breathing activities you've learned during social emotional learning with Ms. Link?
1: Oh, deep breaths.
0: Deep breaths, right? The belly breathing. That's a good one. Student teacher Stephanie Schufelt started working at East in August. Between leading social emotional learning and studying trauma-informed practices at MSU Denver, Schufelt will be ready to incorporate these principles when she has her own students. The biggest
4: thing that I want to implement in my classroom is like that feeling of, like, you have somebody to come to and, like, support you.
0: Next summer, MSU Denver plans to offer a graduate certificate and master's degree that focus on trauma-informed practices. Stephanie Daniel, KUNC.
1: Coming up after the break, we'll speak with a trans student from Peonia about his nationally acclaimed photo project, which documents the earliest days of his transition. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Peonia, Colorado is a town of about 1,500, situated along the North Fork Valley in Delta County, the west-central area of Colorado. It's the kind of place where everyone knows each other, and personal news travels fast. Sixteen-year-old Apollo Rodriguez knows this well. Last May, Rodriguez came out as transgender— During that time, he also had a summer internship with a photographer. Part of the internship included working on a month-long photo project. Rodriguez chose to document the earliest days of his transition in a photo essay. His essay was recently published in High Country News. Rodriguez joins us now to talk about his project, the reflective nature of self-portraiture, and coming out as trans in rural Colorado. Apollo, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to Colorado Edition.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
1: I'd like to start by hearing just a bit about what it's like to live in Paonia. How would you describe the town and life there?
2: Well, the town of Paonia is very, very quirky and very quaint, I'd say. It's very, I don't know, it can be kind of whimsical and it can also be kind of monotonous because we've got, it's a beautiful little town, lots of trees and lots of people that you know, but it's also same trees and the same people you know. So it's its, it's a very familiar Feeling uh, living here for so long.
1: <laughs> Good to know. Now, how did you first get into photography?
2: Well, last fall, uh, at the beginning of the school year, during my multimedia class, Abby Harrison came in and did a photography course with us, with all of the students. And I had never done photography before. I wasn't even too like hyped about the program, <laughs> to be totally honest, until like the first day and when I met Abby. Um, I just immediately really fell in love with it. And I did a project about the political divide in my school as my first photography project. And I just really loved it. And who is Abby Harrison? So Abby Harrison, I think that right now she is studying at Columbia in New York. She is an amazing photojournalist. I'm not super sure how she got involved with the school, but she was just teaching a workshop with us. And she kind of does that thing that photographers do of traveling around and taking cool photos and teaching cool workshops and just kind of a hodgepodge of things. And I think Peonia was like a, a stop for her, um, not to put words in her mouth. But she, um, she was a great mentor for me, lots of influence. And I, I really looked up to her work and her drive and just like her eye for photography and working for her or working with her really had an influence on my passion for it.
1: You mentioned you did a project about the political divide in your school. Can you tell me more about that?
2: Yeah, so I did a photo project. It was over the course of, um, I think I worked on it from mid-October until around March, I think, but the height of it was during the November election. And there was a lot of very polarized, very divided opinions in my town and in my school like there would be neighbors where it would go a trump sign and then a biden sign and a trump sign. it was just very very blatant divide and i thought that was kind of really interesting i wanted to dive into that so i took portraits of students in my school uh, with all sorts of varying political opinions and then would do interviews with them about their opinions and include that as captions with the photos and um I wanted to just kind of show, like, who goes to Peony High School and what the political divide is like for these people who all know each other during the election.
1: We should note some of your photos from that project were published by NPR earlier this year. What did that feel like?
2: Oh, that was so that was so amazing for me because I was just just starting out like those were my first pictures I'd taken. And I, I was very proud of that and very proud of my other classmates that were also uh, featured, that also really kind of boosted me towards really liking photography. Because I was like, wow, I can really like get my stuff out there. Everyone can see my work. What is it
1: you like about portrait photography in particular?
2: I really like portrait photography because it's, I know it sounds cheesy to be like oh you take a picture of someone and then it's them like that's what a picture is but I really like portrait (laughs) photography because you can like really capture like who someone is through a photo through like different types of lighting or just the angles or if you zoom in on like just their hands or just their jewelry or what they're wearing I think it's just a really interesting way to get to know somebody and get to be able to share who they are with the world Let's turn
1: to this photo project you did on coming out as trans. Where did that start for you?
2: All right. So I was doing an internship with Abby for a community workshop over the summer, and I needed a photo project to work on. And I had just come out probably a week or two before the workshop started in May. And I wanted to document something with change. And I was bouncing ideas off of Abby of, you know, documenting somebody else's change over a month. But then we kind of came to this realization of, oh, I'm changing a lot right now. I have a lot of change and doing some self-portrait work could be really interesting because I hadn't really done much of that before. So I just started out by just taking pictures when I had kind of a rough day with it or a good day with it, or if I wanted to dig deeper and explore some part of it, I would just start taking photos and it's very therapeutic.
1: I know you've taken a lot of portrait photos. Was this your first foray into self-portraits and how is it different?
2: Yeah, I think this was one of my first real deep dives into self-portrait work. I did a little bit of it in the school year, but like really basic, simple stuff. And I think it's really interesting because when you take photos, you're always biased because it's how you're seeing it through your eyes and how you're perceiving it, you know? And when you're taking portraits of other people, you have to really try and put that bias aside and be like, no, this is about them and how they are, not how I perceive them to be. But with self-portrait work, it's all about your own self-perception. And it's, it's so removed from what other people see. And it's really a way to finally be like, this is what I'm seeing. And I, I think there's something really beautiful about that.
1: And you talked about how portrait work can show who a person is in a deeper way. What does your project reveal about who you are?
2: I think that my project at the time revealed that I was very, I'm a very introspective person. I like to look at the little things, I think. I I don't know, because in my project, there's a lot of things that are kind of like hands or like cut off of just my shoulder things like that and I think I really like I really value the little things about myself if that answers the question
1: absolutely Um. And in fact I wanted to ask about one of the photos in your project it's of a metal necklace with a male symbol pendant hanging over just barely touching a mirror what does that photo mean to you
2: That is one of my favorite photos of the project. That's a necklace that one of my best friends gave to me after I came out. And I used to wear it every single day. It was super important to me. I I think that if you really want to like analyze it and stuff, that picture is very reflective with the mirror of like, this is how I'm seeing myself with the masculinity and the chain. It just, I'm rambling here. (laughs) Um,
1: You're not rambling. You are opining.
2: Um, let's see I guess that picture is very significant to me because I think it's really representative of how I was presenting at the time like I wore that necklace everywhere because it was very declarative of like I am a man and just having it reflected off of one of my own like handheld mirror shows that that's how I was really really seeing myself too
1: do you have any other favorite photos from the essay
2: I do really like the photo of me in the dress where it's just my shoulder with the blue light and there's two that follow it of me in like a button up and then the dress on the shirt or the 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 and then the dress on the floor I really like that whole series I don't know I think it's just the lighting makes me very happy and my shoulders look very androgynous and I really I loved that
1: Apollo when you came out as transgender what kind of reaction did you get from your community?
2: At the time I was going to Peony high school and it was like the last week of school that I came out. It was received pretty well. All of my teachers are pretty understanding of a few like questions of like, you know, being cautious and just wanting to know more, but nothing bad. Um, and then with my family, I think it was, and it still is a bit of a learning curve. And at first I think it was kind of a foreign thing. It was a very foreign thing. And since May, uh, my parents have both, We've all like worked together to learn about things, Um, but it was definitely kind of rough to really put yourself out there so vulnerably and be like, no, this is who I really am. And I have to, I was coming out to so many people and it was received mostly well, but I think that all in all, it was just a bit exhausting.
1: Well, I'm also curious how people have reacted to your project. I would imagine it's a way for others to see you on more of your terms as opposed to maybe their own filters of of what it means to be trans.
2: Yeah, no, that's a really great way to put it. I think that in the feedback I've gotten for the projects, I've gotten a lot of texts that are like, this was so beautiful to have insight to what you're really going through and what this really means for you. And like a lot of thank yous for sharing that with people that do know me well and are very understanding. And I think that it's a very useful thing and a very helpful thing for me to be able to put it out there so vulnerably in a way that I feel very secure in. And everyone's been really receptive of that.
1: Do you feel accepted by people your age in Paonia or maybe in the larger county area?
2: Well, now I'm going to North Fork High School, a town over, and I would say that uh, my existence as a trans person in Delta County is something very foreign and often I think scary to kids my age. And I don't know if I if it has been received too well my coming out at this new school with new people. Um, I think it's something that is learned. And uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a a tough time being trans in rural Colorado because I'm one of maybe four trans people at my school, maybe so it's definitely being in a minority.
1: As we speak, I'm sure there are other teens who live in rural Colorado who are considering coming out as trans or perhaps dealing with some of the same difficulties that you have after coming out. What would you want to tell them?
2: I think just that it is always, always best to be your authentic self and if you're in a safe and nurturing environment, you should absolutely find ways to express yourself, even if they're little, even if it's not the full coming out yet, like wearing what makes you happy and experimenting with things. If you can experiment with things, I think that it's always best to not repress who you really are and that things will definitely get better one day. Even if your current situation is kind of rough with a reception to it, you know who you are and like, you know, your authentic self. And in the end, that'll pay off.
1: What role or how would you describe the role that photography has played in your transition?
2: I think that photography has been a really great outlet for me with my transition to really explore um, like what I'm really thinking and what how I really want to express myself. It, it's It's very therapeutic for me to just be able to come home after a long day of feeling really dysphoric or being misgendered a bunch of times or questioning myself and just start taking pictures of myself or of other things. And as I'm taking pictures, it's just a way for me to kind of work things through and get things out. And by the end of my little photography session, I always feel a bit more level-headed.
1: What's next for you as a photographer?
2: Right now, I'm applying to some art schools in California for next year because I'm graduating this year. So that's a big step just fine tuning my portfolio and I'm really hoping to get started on another project, um, maybe about where I live or something like that, but I'd love to start another long form project.
1: Apollo Rodriguez, as a 16 year old high school student and photographer in Peonia. His photo essay on coming out as trans in the rural West was recently published by High Country News. You can see it on their website. You'll find a link at ours, kunc.org. Apollo, thank you so much for joining us. All the best with photography as you get set to graduate. Thank you. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, a small oil and gas company operating on the Western Slope has been called out by environmentalists for being among the top four polluters of methane in the entire country. We'll hear an investigation into whether that's true and what state air quality regulators might be missing. That's on tomorrow's show. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.